work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription well here we go again my name is mick sullivan and this is the past and the curious this is not a normal episode of the past and the curious this is a split episode that we have partnered with our friends from the podcast tumble some of you probably listen to tumble some of you probably should listen to tumble they like us are members of kids listen and they like us recently had a baby and we know how hard that is uh, on your schedule so when they proposed sharing some content back and forth uh we couldn't say no yes because we felt their pain and baby crying um, but also they were one of the main inspirations for me starting a podcast so it was really really cool for that to happen um, i'm really excited to share that with you i also need to shout out to one of our listeners bairn who took inspiration from the prairie dog story and the following episode about museums and created an entire series of paintings about the prairie dog which has been renamed wait for it prairie weather lewis it's brilliant it's going to be on our social media you should check it out thank you so much for doing that baron it was really exciting for me uh let's go ahead and get started with the story of utsi take it away me as you probably know countries fight about a lot of things usually it's about something big but international conflicts have also been sparked by such seemingly small things as pigs rooting in the wrong place, a runaway dog, and even one measly ear that used to be attached to the head of some guy named Jenkins. But only once in history have two nations fought over a dead guy in his underwear. Luckily, the would-be war for Utsi and his underwear never got violent. Inspired by Utsi's chill demeanor and chillier body temperature, cooler heads prevailed. And before the militaries got involved, Italy and Austria turned to the real authorities. Scientists. Austria and Italy are very close together. In fact, they share a border. This border, or the disagreement about where it begins and ends, was precisely the problem. No one cares about a boundary line until something valuable is on that boundary. And in 1991, one of the most valuable discoveries of all time was made along this particular border. It wasn't buried treasure or jewels. It was a dead body. But because this dead body was found high up in the Alpine mountains, it could be hard to know exactly where the boundaries were in the snowy, jagged, and rocky landscape of the mountain range. It all began with a hike. A couple from Germany was on vacation near the Utstel Valley section of the majestic mountain range known as the Alps. 
But these folks were not the kind of people to sit around and enjoy the scenery from a distance. They came to experience nature up close and personal. Knowing that the mountains would become significantly more treacherous when you're actually in them, they dressed one fateful morning in their warmest and driest clothes, which probably included fancy moisture-wicking underwear. If you're the type who likes cold, strenuous activity, this is probably as fun as it gets. The couple was most definitely having fun, up until the point that they came across an old, gross corpse along the trail. The couple froze in their tracks at the sight of the body, which itself was frozen into the ice from the underwear down. As good citizens, the hiking couple confirmed that there was nothing they could do for this man. It didn't take much to realize that no amount of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or CPR would bring him back to life. Still, it was an unsettling sight. The couple wondered that perhaps there had been a crime? Or at the very least, what if somebody was missing this poor dead guy? So they immediately headed to a station on the trail and alerted authorities. The Alpine emergency workers rushed to the scene, only to find a job out of their league. This was not the sort of rescue that they were qualified to do. Instead, they also called in the real authorities. Scientists. Actually, that's not entirely true. Before the scientists arrived on the scene, there was an effort made to free the body. The body's torso, head, and arms were mostly out of the ice already, but from the waist down, the crusty fellow was firmly stuck, like a pilfering arm caught in a candy vending machine. It was slow going, so they actually crowdsourced the labor. Anyone who happened by on the trail was invited to take a few whacks at the ice and try to be the big winner to free the old body. Word to the wise. Don't let random people do delicate work. As you might guess, This recklessness left the specimen with some serious damage. When the scientists finally figured out what they were dealing with, the thought of these random citizens swinging at the Iceman was petrifying. Because it turns out this wasn't a freshly dead body. It wasn't even a pretty old body. After removing it from the ice and running radiocarbon tests, scientists discovered the man had been dead for over 5,000 years years. Good thing they decided against that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, huh? Frozen or not, everyone needs a name. And because of his location in the Utstel Valley, they naturally started calling him Utzi. The discovery was incredible. Old bodies had been found, but nothing in this condition. While Utzi's head, shoulders, knees, and toes were certainly exciting, some people were even more excited by what was found with him. All of his stuff. Across the sea in Egypt, plenty of mummies had been recovered alongside physical possessions, but those weren't a very realistic collection of things these people would have actually used while living. The perished pharaohs and mortal mummies of Egypt were buried with all of the objects that their friends thought they might need in their splendid afterlife. So fancy dishes, vats of honey, fine clothes, and of course plenty of changes of underwear. But what if any of these guys would have just died alone on a random day in a random place like poor Utsi? These Egyptian royals benefited from an elaborate burial ceremony. Utsi, the regular old dead guy in the European Alps, just died with all the stuff he would have had on any normal day. And this discovery was momentous. So as not to embarrass the Iceman, doctors covered his nearly naked body and carried him down the mountain to a nearby supersized refrigerator in Austria. 
If he warmed up, the body would rot, so it was important to keep him on ice like a tub of grandma's egg salad. But while the temperature in the refrigerator dropped, the dispute outside over who deserved to keep the dead guy heated up. The hikers had discovered him right on the border of Italy and Austria, with the Italians claiming that he was found on their side of the imaginary line. He was rightfully theirs, they believed. But Utzi was already comfortably nestled in Austria, and the Austrians respectfully disagreed with Italy about where the boundary line was. They planned on keeping Utzi cold in their walk-in freezer in Innsbruck, Austria, for the rest of his days. The disagreement got pretty serious. Who knew a dead guy in his underwear could be such a commodity? International law doesn't settle such matters by having presidents play paper-rock-scissors for cold corpses. Instead, they got their final answer from those authoritative scientists. After some precise GPS measurements were taken of Utzi's final resting place, it was confirmed that the Italians were correct. The dead guy in underwear was their dead guy in underwear. They celebrated the odd victory and immediately began planning not just how they'd study him, but how to create an entire tourist industry by putting poor Utzi in his underwear on display for the world. But some Austrians were not happy. Immediately, threats were made from would-be mummy-nappers in Austria who shivered at the idea of the Austrian Iceman becoming the oldest and coldest Italian citizen. Officials were honestly afraid someone might try to steal the crusty old thing, so they spared nothing when it came to precautions. The super-dead, nearly-naked man was, no joke, loaded into an ambulance, several years too late, mind you, and given a multi-police car escort over the border to Italy. With the body snatchers subdued, Utzi was nestled into his new safe house. He was laid on a glass slab in a moisture and temperature-controlled room in Bolzano, Italy. If this poor guy could have spoken, he probably would have said that he just wanted to relax at this point. But you know how scientists are. Sure, they're experts at a lot of stuff. But when it comes to poking and prodding at old specimens such as Utzi, well, they just can't help themselves. At 5,300 years old, this man quite possibly became the most poked, most prodded, and most spied-upon human body in history. Scientists discovered a lot about him, and by extension, they got a glimpse at what life was like for a human 5,000 years ago. First off, he was probably around 50 years old. That's older than scientists believe most people lived at that time and they were able to pinpoint where he was born and how far he traveled by the chemical deposits in his bones and teeth. By taking samples from his stomach, they were even able to see exactly what he had eaten for breakfast the day he died. They also discovered what illnesses were plaguing the poor guy, and he had quite a few. But Utzi also had an axe, a bow and arrows, a tinderbox with fire supplies, and even some fungus that he probably used as a medicine. As thrilling as fire and weapons are to scientists, Utzi's clothing was just as exciting. Aside from the leather loincloth underwear he had on, nearby they also found warm fur leggings, a shawl to keep the dampness off of his body, and a bearskin hat. Perhaps his shoes were most remarkable. They were big and round and filled with straw and covered in fur. One scientist was so intrigued by them that he made exact replicas and he discovered that they were the best shoes he had ever found for hiking in the steep, snowy sides of the Alpine Mountains. 
It was obvious that Otsi knew what he was doing. You don't make it to 50 years old in the early Bronze Age without learning a thing or two. And Utsi had certainly learned plenty. And luckily for us, Utsi died on a hillside, was immediately freeze-dried under a snowfall, and gulped up by a slow-moving ice glacier. We, in turn, are still learning plenty from him because his normal, everyday body was so perfectly preserved. Pharaohs and rulers are cool and all, but everyday people tell the best stories. Once again, here is a podcast that should need no introduction. Tumble, a science podcast for kids. You should go subscribe, you should go enjoy, you should listen to their catalog, and you should be grateful that there are people like Lindsay and Marshall doing their thing in the world. We're big fans, we hope you like it too. Thanks, Lindsay and Marshall. Take it away. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're climbing deep into a cave to meet three underground astronauts. Underground astronauts? Like they're in hiding or something? (laughs) No. They're archaeologists on an expedition to find fossils from one of our ancient relatives. But like astronauts in space, they have some pretty special talents and a love of adventure. There we go. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Uh, hi, I'm Marina and Becca. <laughs> my name's Becca. And we have Kenny here Kenny. as well. Yeah. I'm sitting at my desk talking over Skype to Marina Elliott, Becca Pichotto, and Kenny Molipanier. They're part of a team of archaeologists working in South Africa. But it's kind of an unusual interview setup. They're in a cave 30 meters underground. Whoa, that's like 100 feet. Sorry, Lindsay, give us a second while we try to con- get ourselves into a place in the cave that's actually reasonably comfortable and you can see us. <laughs> All right, the challenges of, you know, doing interviews from underground. So um, how do you get Skype in a cave? Is there just like a desktop in there when they got in? It's a, a, a lot of um, wiring and then Wi-Fi. Becca, Marina, and Kenny squeezed together to fit into the screen. They were wearing hard hats with headlamps and pants with reflective tape. They were sitting in what's called the Dinaletti Chamber of the Rising Star Cave System, about 50 miles from Johannesburg. It's the site of a major discovery in the history of humankind, Homo Naledi. Here's Becca. Homo Naledi is a early hominid. We don't know if it's an ancestor or probably more like a cousin. And it's about 250,000 years old. So far, it's only been found in this one cave system in South Africa. Hominid is the name of the group of species that includes modern humans and our extinct relatives like Neanderthals. The caves in this part of South Africa have been a hotbed of hominid discovery for the past hundred years. Homo naledi was one of the biggest finds ever. They found not just one specimen or one body, but 15. So how did they find this? Was there like a treasure map and a pirate going like, Arr, if you look here, you'll find my buried treasure of a bunch of monkey bones. <laughs> well, it didn't happen quite like that. Back in 2013, two cavers were exploring the cave system when they found a tiny gap in the cave wall. 
They squeezed through it into an open chamber, and with the light from their headlamps, they saw bones literally scattered across the surface of the floor. Wow, but if people had been exploring caves in the area for a hundred years, how did they miss these fossils just laying out in the open? Well, to say it's hard to get to the Dinaletti chamber would be a total understatement. I'll let Kenny describe how she, Becca, and Marina get there every day. Our first obstacle is the Superman's crawl. Uh, we would get down on our bellies and just wiggle our way through this tunnel. Oh boy, <laughs> That's, that sounds like, really, uh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of small spaces. Superman's crawl is less than 10 inches high. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's just the beginning. Next comes a climb up a jagged rock wall. And then you climb up Dragon's Back, jump over Leap of Faith, which is a meter um, distance leap from one point to the next point. <laughs> Dragon's Back, Leap of Faith. My goodness, <laughs> this just sounds like one of the most super intense things a person can do. And then we enter into what I call the crystal chandelier chamber, <laughs> where you like unclip your harness and sort of brace yourself for facing the chute. This is the gut-clenching part, the chute. It's what kept Dinaletti chamber a secret for hundreds of thousands of years. It's literally a crack in the wall. And the chute has an 18 centimeter pinch point, which is where you hold your breath, say a little prayer, and squeeze through. And then, yeah, then you make it into the chamber, the fossil chamber. Hold on, did she say 18 centimeters? Yes, that's seven inches. That's like the size of two and a half Hot Wheels cars laid end to end. I love that that's your unit of measurement. Isn't that everybody's unit of measurement? Yeah, yeah. so your entire body has to fit through the space of two and a half Hot Wheels cars. Oh my gosh. That's... I can't do that. <laughs> what I really can't imagine, actually, is how someone thought to find this cave. <laughs> it's one of those happy accident kind of things. If the cavers hadn't been tiny people, too, they would never would have found it. But getting there isn't the only challenge. Becca described the other creatures that they encountered on their way to work that morning. There were six or seven bats that we sort of woke up, I suppose, and they were trying very hard to figure out which way they should go to get out of our way. Ah, not only have I been woken up early, but now I have to sit in traffic too. Ah, <laughs> what a miserable way to start a bat night. <laughs> Anyhow, once the excavators get down there, they work up to eight hours. So, okay, like main question, do they get bathroom breaks? You know, if you decide while you're underground that you need to use the restroom, you have to wait till you get above ground to do that. So you have to plan ahead a little, uh, anticipate your needs so that you can get out through that 18 centimeter gap and through the Superman crawl and everything else. Okay, so like crawling through tiny cracks in the wall to look at ancient bones is like pretty unusual job. So how do you get it? Well, you answer a Facebook ad to be an underground astronaut. Here's how Kenny described finding the gig. I, I was procrastinating, um, just trawling around Facebook and Instagram, and here was this ad, and I was like, I'm going to take it. So, like, what did the ad say? Well, first of all, you need to be small enough to fit through that 18-centimeter hole in a wall. <laughs> first thing was, can you fit through a small hole? <laughs> so you don't just need the body, you need the brains, too. 
the expedition needed people with skills in excavating fossils and studying them. Here's Marina. Um, You needed to be able to work well in a small team, not be claustrophobic, not be scared of heights, be willing to, you know, fly to South Africa for a month without pay and work underground in a potentially dangerous (laughs) environment. I mean, who wouldn't sign up to work in a dangerous environment for no pay? You'd have to be crazy not to do it. Yeah, I just read Adventure and I was like, yep, you're sold. (laughs) So if you love adventure and don't mind small enclosed spaces, like really, really small enclosed spaces, being an underground astronaut would be like a dream job. Yeah, you get the chance to be part of a huge discovery in early human history. On the original expedition in 2013, Marina and Becca helped collect the first bones of Homo naledi that had ever been studied. We excavated just one unit, which was basically 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters by 20 centimeters deep. We took some material off the surface, but all told we ended up with about 1,500 fossil fragments. Wow, that's incredible, like having a 1,500-piece puzzle with no photo on the box. Yeah, and it was a species that no one had ever seen before. So definitely no photo on the box. (laughs) Scientists carefully constructed 15 skeletons from the 1,500 fossil pieces. Then they were able to imagine what Homo naledi would have looked like while they were alive. Becca kind of painted a picture for me. If you were to see a Homo naledi on the street, you would not think that it looked a lot like us. But it still has a lot in common with humans. It walked on two feet. Its feet, in fact, look an awful lot like ours. It was really short. Even the adults were under five feet tall. On the reconstructions, the head of Homo naledi looks kind of small for its body. Its brain was less than half the size of ours. Its forehead had a steep slope, kind of like an ape. Um, And then it has shoulders that are um, a lot like a gibbon. It also had long, curved fingers like a modern-day monkey. That suggests to us that maybe Homo naledi was still doing lots of climbing in some way. But the bones in its thumbs and wrists suggest that they could have used tools, which is like a really advanced skill for most species. So what does this discovery tell us about humans? Here's what Marina said. You know, the human family tree is a lot bushier than than people sometimes make it out to be. It's not just a straight line from one ancient hominid species down to us. At the 350 to 250,000 year point, certainly in Africa, you know, anatomically modern humans were already on the landscape. So like we might have had some homo naledis over for a party. (laughs) Or we could have been fighting with them. I mean, maybe both. (laughs) God, we're not inviting the naledis over again. They always smash the table and steal all the fruit. They're not even that good at using spoons. (laughs) Anyhow, scientists are starting to piece together what it would have looked like to have several hominid species on Earth at one time. The fact that we discovered Homo naledi so recently proves that there's still so much out there to find. It's pretty exciting to find a bunch of bones that belong to a creature that hadn't been described before in science. Um, that, you know, nobody had ever seen before. So if they were able to construct Homo naledi from that first expedition, why do they keep coming back to the cave? That's a really good question, and here's Marina's answer. I think it's really important not just to, you know, 
bring these initial fossils up and go, okay, we know all about Homo naledi because we really don't. In other words, they want to know what more there is to discover. And there are definitely more fossils left. We've already hit quite a lot of bone. So what are they hoping to find out? I mean, one of the, I think, the, the big questions is why and how were they getting into this deep area of the cave? The big mystery is how Homo naledi ended up in a place that's nearly impossible to access. Maybe there was an easier entrance to the cave that, you know, closed up sometime in the last 250,000 years. That's definitely a possibility that they're exploring. But how did so many bones end up there? There's no evidence that Homo naledi actually lived in the cave. No plants, no other bones of other animals, no nothing. Here's the best idea scientists have. The Dinaledi chamber was actually a burial ground. We're still working on the hypothesis that Homo naledi was deliberately bringing its dead into this very difficult to access space. Um, you know, we've been at it for five years now and we haven't found a better explanation. Many scientists don't believe that such a small brain species could have had funerals. That's part of the reason why Marina, Becca, Kenny, and others keep looking for more fossils that might give us more clues to the mystery. You don't sort of find the answer and that's the end of it and you can kind of wash your hands and go home. Every time we come out, we find something new and every time we find something new, we revise our, you know, ideas based on the new evidence. So the whole funeral idea could be buried by the new fossils they find. Yeah, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pun. Yeah, and that would be scientific progress to have a completely new idea in maybe just a few years. Okay, so how does one, not me, but someone, become an underground <laughs> astronaut? Just spend like a lot of time procrastinating on social media. That's one aspect. The other part is to actually get out there and do stuff. All three women told me that they couldn't have predicted that they'll be sitting in a cave, digging up precious fossils, and doing podcast interviews. But they all had adventurous experiences that somehow led them there. Marina had this advice. Try everything and anything. Try things you think you'll like. Try things you think you might not like. Do it safely, but be curious and get out there. Kenny, do you have anything you want to add? Adventure! <laughs> Thanks to all the awesome women I spoke to in the Dinaledi chamber. Dr. Marina Elliott, researcher at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa and lead excavator of the Rising Star Expedition. She's also in charge of the field crew. Dr. Becca Pichotto is the director of the Center for Exploration of the Human Journey at the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas. In the cave, she's an excavator. Canelo Molipiane is getting her PhD at the University of Witwatersrand and was a trainee on the Rising Star Expedition. To find out more about Homo naledi and the Rising Star Expeditions, visit our blog at sciencepodcastforkids.com. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this episode. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the wonderful music you're hearing. Join us next time for more stories of science discovery.
Thanks, Tumble Team. And thank you for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. We will be back very soon, just a matter of weeks with a new episode. We've got a lot of really fun ones planned, but the next few will probably include something like, oh, polymaths and sword fighters and musicians and automatons and maybe a little bit of Frankenstein's monster sprinkled in there. I don't know. Just just a guess. I'm just predicting. Uh, stay tuned for all of that and more. Thank you very much for listening. This has been The Past and the Curious. One weird day in 1876 in Bath County, Kentucky, meat fell from the sky. Meat? 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 Meat! Yes, meat. And in 2019, we were weird enough to write a book about it. Not just any book, because we can't do anything normal. What we decided to do is pretend that the only surviving piece of meat in the world, which really does exist, yeah, we made him the narrator of our story. I can't wait to share it with you. It is called The Meat Shower. It is available now as we speak, or as I speak. I don't know if you're talking right now or not. As you listen and as I speak, it is available now. You can go to our website, thepastandthecurious.com, or the publisher's website, earlyworkspress.com, for more information. The Meat Shower.